Every Saturday morning, there is a battle that wages in our house. It is the battle between our three children of who will walk across the street and have their piano lessons first. You see, all three of our children do not like taking piano, but all are forced to take piano lessons because both their parents were forced to take piano lessons when they were young. And you do to your children what was done to you. Of course, all kidding aside, uh, we want them to have the privilege uh, of learning a musical instrument to broaden their minds and to uh, work the part of the brains that pure academics doesn't simply allow. Now, one would think it would be very easy to adjudicate this problem, just simply rotate fairly who goes first. But the situation is at that on Saturday mornings, the only day when they can sleep in, they wake up at different times, like my youngest, Janelle. Uh, she wakes up the latest, usually. So the two boys don't think it's very fair that either one of them always has to go first. You know how kids are in their sense of fairness. We've tried to explain to our boys that we should let her, the youngest, sleep more if she wants to. Well, our two boys will try to wake up as early as possible because Saturday is the day they can play on their iPad. The rest of the days, mom bans them from it because it is school days. So you see this problem and this battle rages every Saturday morning. Recently, I got tired of their complaining, and so I put down my fatherly foot and told them that I have a plan, and it will decide fairly who goes and has their piano lesson first. And so I sat down all three, and I told them that Daddy has a plan. And, of course, they wanted to know what the plan would be before they agreed to it. I said, no. You have to trust me. Do you trust Daddy? Uh, with a bit, of, a bit of hesitation, they said yes. Do you trust that Daddy would be fair? They said, okay, yes, usually. I said, all of you have to agree. Before I tell you the plan, all of you have to agree to abide by it. This decision must be something that has to have no complaining, and you must all abide by it. And so they eventually agreed. I said, here it is. On Saturday morning, the first person to touch the iPad would be the first one to have their piano lesson first. I thought that was Solomaic in wisdom because I know they struggle with not wanting to do something but wanting to do something. Of course, the first few weeks they didn't complain, but now the complaining has started again. But they have no choice. They have to submit to my will. It doesn't matter how fair it seems to them. They have to abide. Now, do we like that? If you were in the position of my children, you would hate that. And if you've experienced something similar, you understand what I'm talking about. You know, in the same way in our Christian life, when we claim with our mouth that we are willing to submit to the will of God, I wonder, do we do it without complaining? Do we truly yield and submit our lives to whatever He reveals or doesn't reveal? You see, what's the point of all this? Why are we talking about this in the middle of a sermon series entitled Imperfect? How we can show the world that they can be made perfect in Christ. You see, the issue is how in the world can we reach out to a lost world to tell them that they can find joy and satisfaction in the perfect plan of God? That if they follow the standard of holiness that God has set for them through the scriptures, then they will experience a wonderful, blessed life. 
How can we tell them that and not be hypocritical because they see that we are always complaining about God's will for our life. They see in our life that we are disobeying God's explicit will for our lives written in the Scripture or God's implicit will in our lives through the prompting of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't make sense to the world. You see, the will of God is not some mystery we have to discover. Most of it is already revealed explicitly in the Scriptures. As Randy Alcorn would say, the will of God is not wrapped up in the details of what we do, but the very character of who we are. The will of God is not just in the large choices, but the daily small choices that cumulatively build us into who God wants and wills us to be. God cares about the little things, and His will can include details, but these are secondary. What is primary is that we choose to follow His clear direction in spiritual and moral arenas. Then all the details fall into place from there. We complain because we haven't thought through the realities of following God's will in the development of our entire character. We haven't looked through eyes of reality that says, if we will follow the will of God, these are the things that will happen. And when those things happen, we bail. Let's take a look this morning at the realities of following God's will, both explicitly prescribed in the Scripture and implicitly prompted by the Holy Spirit as we continue our sermon series. Turn up in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 22 is where we pick up our story from last week, verses 39 to 53. Luke chapter 22, verse 39 to 53. If you remember from last week, Jesus and his disciples had just had their last supper in one of the many upper rooms throughout Jerusalem. Judas by now had left them after Jesus told him that he could go and do whatever he wanted to do. Verse 39. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed, and his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. After supper, the Bible tells us, they walked down the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives where they entered an area called the Garden of Gethsemane. Apparently, they prayed there every night that week they were in Jerusalem. We know this from the phrase, as he was accustomed. In fact, Luke chapter 21, verse 37 tells us that they were there every evening to pray. And that's why later on, we know how Judas was able to find them. And it was in this Garden of Gethsemane that Jesus implored his disciples to pray for him and for themselves so that they will hold on firm to the faith, not falling into temptation on this, one of the most darkest of nights. And as he implored them to pray, Jesus walked off a, a short distance and he prayed privately to God the Father. He asked God the Father, if it is your will that I do not have to die in this way, then so be it. But if it is your will, then let it happen. And I want you to underline and circle this phrase. Jesus said, 
Not my will, but yours be done. Not my will, but yours be done. You see, the cup is a symbol of the suffering that Jesus would have to endure because of God's rightful and wrathful punishment and judgment on sin. And this cup would include death, which is separation from the Godhead. And that's why Jesus said, if it's your will that this cup can be taken from me, Lord, let it be. But if not, I understand. Because Jesus knew the Father's will. In fact, he knew what God the Father wanted since the beginning of time, since his incarnation as a baby in Bethlehem. Jesus knew that he had come to the earth incarnate for a very specific purpose. And yet he shuddered at the thought of having sin laid on him. And that's why he petitioned God if it can pass from him. But yet note, he does not demand. In great yielding and submission, he submitted to the perfect will of God. And the Bible tells us in verse 43, God the Father sent God the Son, angels, to minister to him, to encourage him for the task that must be done. I wonder how many of us acknowledge what we have to do. It is no secret for one who comes to church often. It is not a secret for one who reads the scriptures. How many times do we acknowledge we have to do it? We have a purpose. Yet only to shudder, to step back, once we know the implication of what we are called to do. You see, we are called to be transformed to the image and the likeness of Jesus Christ. And that transformation of life requires change. And when we talk about change, we get scared. We don't like it. We shudder. And so we put a condition on our decision of submission and following God's will. We tell God, God, I'm willing to submit if you tell me your plans so that I can analyze it. But you tell me first, then I'll let you know if I want to submit or not. That, my friends, is not submission. Or many of us ask God, tell us your will. And it's right here in the scriptures. And we read it and we say, you know what? I don't like your will for my life. If I like it, I'll do it. If I don't like it, I won't do it. That, my friends, is also not doing the Father's will. You see, if God were standing here this morning, figuratively... And he asks you, would you be willing to do anything that I ask you to do? I'm sure all of you would raise your hand because that is the right answer. That is the right answer for a Christian. We are to do the will of God, the perfect will of God, because God makes no mistakes. But what if God has revealed to me, hypothetically, to tell you what his will for your life would be? And I were to tell you that you are to go to Africa for the rest of your life and to serve as a missionary. If I were to tell you that God has willed it, that you give up your career, it is God's will that you live in poverty for the rest of your life. It is God's will that you remain single for the rest of your life. It is God's will that you remain childless. It is God's will that that person that you love very much will not be physically healed. Would you still raise your hand and submit to His will without complaining? That is where the rubber hits the road. That is the reality of when we say we follow the will of God. That is the implication. Following it wholeheartedly. I want you to notice in the Gospel of Luke, 
that he does not record or explain what is that will for Jesus to experience that God has for him to do. Yes, we know what it is. But in this context, what matters to Luke is not what is that will, but what matters is the submission, the action, the willingness to do God's will in spite of what it is. You see, if you submit to the Father's will in your life, then just do it. But I want you to make that decision not through the eloquence of words, not through the conviction to make you feel guilty. I want you to make that decision of following God's will with eyes wide open. And before you make that decision, I need to tell you that God's will, the Father's will, comes with it great joy and great satisfaction, but it also comes with it experiences that you may not like. And knowing both the good and the bad of what it means to follow Jesus, then you can make a decision, eyes wide open, without sugarcoating what that decision entails. So I'm going to share with you four experiences that come with following God's will. Verse 44, the first one. And being in agony, Jesus prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Jesus submitted to the will of God the Father, but being completely human in addition to being completely divine, Jesus knew the pain and the dread of impending death. What was this agony? Perhaps Jesus was thinking about the separation from the triune Godhead as he took on the sins of the world. The agony of being separated from the Godhead for the first time since eternity passed. Something that has never happened before in the history of time. I want you to imagine the separation that you've experienced. The separation from a loved one through distance or through death. The separation of a loved one, of a child or a spouse. And the intensity of the pain and the anguish. Now multiply that by an eternal factor. And you will begin to get a glimpse of the agony that Jesus must have felt. Knowing the prospect of for the first time in all of limitless history, that he would be separated from the Godhead. Perhaps Jesus was in agony of taking on the sins of the world, all of it past, present, and future. He who has never experienced the ugliness of sin, he who knew no sin, would take upon himself all the sins of the world of all ages. An experience so painful, multiplied by infinity, as he took on the burden and the weight of all of history's sin. We can never grasp the agony and the suffering that Jesus endured. And yet in his agony, the Bible tells us in verse 44, Jesus prayed even more to the Father. In fact, in this anguish prayer, he sweat, sweated profusely. And because of that, Luke describes his sweat as like great drops of blood. Luke was making a connection between Jesus' agony and suffering in anticipation of the cross to the shed blood that must happen for the remission of sin for mankind. You see, no one ever said that it would be easy to follow God and His will. 
No one ever said it would be easy to follow the will of God. If there's any pastor that stands before you or you listen to any program that tells you that a life lived for Jesus, following His will, will always be wonderful without pain or anguish or sorrow or suffering, then that pastor or that person has not fully read the Bible. Truth be told, it will not be easy to follow God in His will. You see, following God's will comes with it an experience, number one, the experience of suffering and sorrow. If you want to follow God in His will, you will experience suffering and sorrow. While it is right to follow the will of God in your life, remember, it's not always a bed of roses. What comes with it is often pain and anguish and sorrow and suffering. Why do you need to know this? You and I need to know this because when we undergo these pain and anguish and sorrow and suffering, we can hold firm in our faith knowing that this is what will happen. This is not unexpected. And knowing this truth will allow us to choose to follow God's will open-minded and eyes wide open at following His will spoken of in the Scriptures and implied through the prompting of the Spirit. No sugarcoating the experience of suffering and sorrow. Are you ready for that? The second experience, verse 45 to 46. Then Jesus rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples. He found them sleeping from sorrow. Then he said to them, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Jesus finishes, finishes praying and looks around and what does he see? He finds his 11 disciples sleeping. And the Bible tells us in verse 46, they were Excuse me, verse 45, they were sleeping from sorrow. They were stressed and weary from thinking about Jesus' impending suffering, perhaps a loss of a leader. And so they became depressed. And what do often depressed people do? They sleep. And that's what they did. In fact, Luke doesn't record in his gospel, which Matthew and Mark tell us, that he finds them on three occasions sleeping. Imagine Jesus wakes them up because he needs that prayer support. And none of them have the strength to stay up with Jesus and pray alongside Him during this moment of greatest need. But from what Jesus experienced, we can extrapolate a principle for one who does the Father's will. You see, the second experience for when you do the Father's will is that, number two, you may experience abandonment and isolation. You may experience abandonment and isolation. When you choose to obey the Father's will, you will find that your journey is often very lonely. Many will not understand what in the world you are doing. Why would you want to live out Christian principles? The world, in fact, will ridicule you for what you are doing. Please, my friends, do not expect that the world will cheer you on. You are not going to get an award for doing the right thing morally or ethically. Yes, you may get one. One in a blue moon. But every time you do something right, you're not going to get a pat on the back or a trophy. You're not going to get an award for telling the truth. But it shouldn't matter because we do not do those things for an award. We do not do that for the accolade and the acceptance of the world. We do and submit to the Father's will for God's glory's sake. We do what is right 
in submission to God's will. I'm reminded of a very funny story. I may have shared this before, but it's a story of a doctor who told his patient, patient, you have a very rare and extremely contagious condition. We're going to put you into an isolation unit where you'll be on a diet of pizza and pancakes. While the patient was shocked, but found it fun and great joy, said, really, doc? Will pizza and pancakes cure my condition? The doctor told the patient, no, sir. They're the only things we can slip under the door. What a picture of the human life, the human spirit. Even doctors who are supposed to take care of their patients will weigh the risk to them. We all do. Everyone assumes the risk, and we all assess the risk to see if there is value in doing what we need to do or not. So you need to understand that isolation and abandonment is part of the Christian life so that when that does happen, you won't be in shock. Because the world is just not going to do what God wants you to do in the Bible The world and God are opposed to each other. The Bible is very clear. You can serve. You cannot serve two masters. And so you've got to make a choice. You know how hard it is to invite someone to church. You've tried. And the reason they don't come is because there are so many options. There are so many distractions. And every day, every person in that moment makes a decision. Is it worth following God? Is it worth it to me? And so you've got to ask yourself the question, if you want to follow God's will, is it worth rejection? Is it worth isolation? That is an assessment you must make. The third experience, look at verse 47 to 51. And while he was still speaking, behold, the multitude, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them, And drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those around him saw what was going to happen, they said to him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus answered and said, permit even this. And he touched his ear and healed him. It was during this time that Judas came, leading a mob, to come to arrest Jesus. And he kissed him to identify the man whom the guards needed to arrest. Judas knew where they were. They had been in the Garden of Gethsemane on the Mount of Olives every night that week. One of the disciples tried to fight back. John tells us who it is. Luke doesn't. John tells us it is Peter. Now, what in the world was Peter doing? Perhaps Peter was trying to cut off the man's head. But this fisherman wasn't a very good swordsman. Or he was just groggy from having woken up. Completely misses the man's head and cuts off the right ear of the high priest's servant. You see, no one says to another, I'm going to cut off your right ear. Peter must have been trying to lop off that man's head, but he missed But then the Bible tells us Jesus reattaches this man's ear. 
know, as I read this passage this week, I, I thought to myself, Jesus has every right not to heal this man. Here is a man who has come to arrest him. Here is a man who has come to lead him to death. If Jesus never reattached his ear, would any of you care? Probably not. A man can live without his right ear. That's how we would think about it. And it wouldn't even be a fair trade. If Jesus never reattaches here, so be it. Jesus is going to die. This man lost the ear. It doesn't even compare. But instead, look what happens. Jesus rebuked Peter and showed forth the very principle he spoke of when he said, do good to your enemies. And he reattaches the ear of this man. Here is a man going to the cross to bear upon himself the sin of mankind, and he takes the time to reattach a man's ear. The last recorded healing miracle of Jesus was to reattach his enemy's right ear. Jesus shows that when one follows the Father's will, number three, they will experience injustice and unfairness. One will experience injustice and unfairness. It is no secret that when Jesus called us to love our enemies and to do good to them and to turn the other cheek, passages like that make us mad. We don't like passages like that. Now, I don't have time to extrapolate these principles from the Sermon on the Mount and other messages of Jesus. But suffice it to say, most all of us will say, but it's not right. I don't want this. And yet these are the words of Jesus. This is the heart of God. This is the will of God. And if you want to follow the will of God, then you have to take it upon yourself to experience injustice and unfairness. That is the nature of following God. It will not be fair. It's like my children who argue with me all the time that it's not fair when I decide something. I have to remind them something. I have to remind them that obedience and fairness do not have anything to do with each other. Did you catch that? Understand that principle. Obedience and submission have nothing to do with fairness. Whether it's fair or not should not determine your submission to God's will. And yet that's what we always do. If it's fair to me, then I will do it. If it's not fair, I won't do it. The Bible never teaches that the foundation of submission, if it's fair to you, life is unfair. Deal with it. God calls us to submit to His will. I like what the late comedian Jack Benny once remarked. He is a comedian of a previous generation, but he was once given an award. And upon accepting the award, Jack Benny, the comedian, remarked, I really don't deserve this award. But then again, I have arthritis, and I didn't deserve that as well. Now think about that. It's a profound statement. I don't deserve this award, but I don't deserve arthritis as well. 
trying to be cute, of course, as a comedian. But that's the truth. If fairness is the foundation of your submission, then you will find submission very difficult. Submission and fairness are mutually exclusive. That is something we must realize. When one submits themselves to the will of God, be ready to experience injustice. Because even if everyone's doing it, it doesn't mean we have to do it. And when believers like you and me understand that injustice and unfairness is a part of the Christian life, that we won't care what everyone else is doing. We will care what God thinks is right or wrong in what we are doing. The fourth experience, verse 52 to 53. Then Jesus said to the chief priests, captains of the temple, and the elders who had come to him, Have you come out as against the robber with swords and clubs? When I was with you daily in the temple, you did not try to seize me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Jesus was telling them, I'm going to go with you. But I'm going with you not because you are forcing me. Remember, Jesus with one snap of the finger, with one thought of his mind, could send legions of angels and destroy all of them. But Jesus was going with them willingly because he willingly submitted to God's will. Jesus told them, you had every chance to arrest me in the temple while I was there. His point was, you could have done it. But it was in God's appointed time, this time, this hour, so implied, God let you win. You can take me because I submit to God's will and God let you win. This is your hour, verse 53, and the power of darkness. Jesus submitted to God's will and he let them win. And that's what I hope you will experience and understand. That number four, when you willingly submit yourself to the will of God, you will experience earthly loss. If you submit to the will of the Father, there are times that you have to choose to lose. And it's a hard one for me to accept for one who loves to win and to win all the time. I don't even let my kids win when I play board games with them. I'm trying to teach them to, to man up. My wife tells me all the time, let them win. Build and encourage them. I said, no. Of course, in my mind, I just don't want to lose. But in submitting ourselves to the will of God, we must be willing to take a loss, a hard loss, if we are to submit to His will. That's what makes submitting to His will so very difficult. That is the very proposition of the book of Job. Satan comes to God and says, Job has it good. Job has never lost. He keeps winning. Look at his family. Look at his business. Look at his reputation. I bet you, God, that if he loses, he will curse you. God says, no, not so, my righteous Job. And so God allows Satan to let Job lose everything. And he lost everything. And Job struggled with that throughout the entire book. You know that. And he had some doubts. 
but he never cursed God. Are you okay with loss? Because unless you're okay with loss and losing out, earthly loss, if you're not okay with it, they will never understand true submission to God's perfect will. But the good news is you may suffer earthly loss, but you will not suffer eternal loss. I think of Martin Lloyd-Jones, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher in the 20th century from England. He came from very humble beginnings in South Wales. He was trained as a physician in London at a noted medical school, uh, trained by world-class doctors. He became a surgeon and was, in fact, an official surgeon of the British monarchy. But God called him into the pastorate, and he left the staff of the queen not to preach to the elites in London, what did he do? God called him to preach the gospel to poor coal miners. The London Times ran a feature story on this. The whole journalistic angle was, how could a prominent young London physician possibly leave all the monies and trappings and respect and position of, in honor of his position to give his years to poor coal miners in Wales? And I love Martin Lloyd-Jones' answer. He said this, I gave up nothing. In fact, I gained all. It is an honor to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I used to think that if I followed the Lord, I would lose my purpose. The thing is, I didn't know what my purpose was. It kept changing. But since Jesus took control of my life, he gave me a purpose. As a husband, a father, a friend, a worker a human being with emotions and desires and interests, I now have a purpose to offer my life to Jesus as an act of love. And when I do, I receive great delight and joy. If I died today, I would be a most complete man. My completeness no longer depends on what great things I have done. I am free from that. My completeness is in Him. I love that last part. If I die today, I would be the most complete man. My completeness no longer depends on what great things I have done. I am free from that. My completeness is in Him. My friends, you will be willing to suffer loss when you can understand that your significance is not foundation in your accomplishment, but that your significance is foundation in your relationship with the author and the finisher of your faith. Because unless you come to that realization, even as a Christian, that you will always seek for your reputation and your significance and your satisfaction and your completeness in life in what you have accomplished or not accomplished in this world. And that is why it will be very hard for you and I to lose. If you want to follow the will of God wholeheartedly, you must be willing to experience earthly loss in view of eternal gain. So here's the question. Is experiencing suffering and sorrow, abandonment and isolation, injustice and unfairness and loss, is it worth it? Is it worth it in this life? Well, let's ask Jesus. If Jesus was here, Jesus, was it worth it? If I were to ask Jesus, was it worth it? He would tell us, absolutely, yes. 
Because our salvation comes because the Son of God submitted to God the Father. Now you may be thinking, well, what was Jesus' attitude? Was it sorrowful? Was he depressed? Did he begrudgingly do this? Horrible things. What he experienced, the agony so deep. The Bible tells us he did it all joyfully because he loved us. So the Bible tells us, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus Christ endured the cross joyfully. He took on the shame joyfully in submission to the Father's will. I wonder if we have a similar attitude upon hearing this. You may walk away this morning and comment to one another, Boy, Pastor C preached a depressing sermon this morning. There weren't a lot of jokes, not a lot of funny stories, some pretty hard-hitting stuff. I have a heaviness of heart. If you walk away with sadness in your heart, then you would have walked away with the wrong attitude. Because it is an attitude of joyfully submitting to the will of God even though we experience the hardship of life, that is what marks a believer. It is what will draw the lost to Jesus. It is why the author of that wonderful hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, can write and pen those words, even though he experienced loss and tragedy and isolation. And when, my friends, you can discover the joy of clinging on to Christ amidst these terrible experiences, then you will understand the joy of what it means to follow God's will. But the choice is yours. Do you want to learn to submit to God's will to experience eternal joys? Or do you not want to do so and experience the half-baked temporal joys that the world offers? I'm not manipulating you. I want you to go home and think about it. And I want you to make sure that when you tell yourself and you tell God and you tell others that I am choosing to follow God and His will, that you do so wholeheartedly in full submission. I end with the words of C.S. Lewis. I think he hits it right on the nail. He says, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation by the beach. We are far too easily pleased. So much truth in that. We are far too easily pleased. My friends, 
do not live for the temporal joys of this world, you will only be very disappointed. Live for the eternal joys that come from a full submission to the Father's will. And while difficulties may be a part of your life because of that decision, it will be worth it all, as that great song reminds us, when we see Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is a good reminder even to me for one who does not like to suffer and like to lose, for one who doesn't like to feel isolated, but because of those things, the world has a grab on me. Help all of us to have a deep desire, a joyful desire to follow your perfect will because when we do so, we will experience joy and gladness unbounded. Our significance is no longer tied to our worldly achievements. We are fully satisfied and complete because there is one who has died in our place. In our relationship with him is what marks our life. May the world see that through us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.